of last week's The Vampire Mummy. It was a hard story to tell. It happened back in 1942. Four men were cursed to wear scarab amulets from the Vampire Mummy century that was guarding the underground tombs of the workers who built the great pyramids. His dry, bandaged, preserved hand raised up, and the amulets appeared on the men. Four vampiric, undead, that were turned that night from being bitten earlier in the week. They turned to mist, and the mist entered the amulets. And the men were frozen, stiff, until the process was over. The vampire mummy turned to me and said, I have no need to curse you. You are cursed by these men alone. Their lives are in your hands. If you fail to bring my four brides back, they will release their undead soldiers upon you and kill you, rend you end from end while you sleep. I can see in here 
all of your movements. And I assure you, you must keep these men close by, so I may, so I may observe your progress in bringing my brides back. To recap last week's episode, a Nazi scientist stole four brides' coffins, and they absconded off with them back to continental Europe. Some insane Nazi plan to use vampires to form an army of the undead. And now I am tasked to travel to war-torn fortress Europe. Not just me, but five of us. Four men wearing gaudy gold ornate scarab necklaces around their necks. Oh no, we won't stand out. And the worst part is we have no idea where the coffins are, where they lie, and what their intentions are with them are. But I must try to find them. The first part of my journey was a quick island hop. They put me on continental Europe. <clears throat> First to Turkey, neutral Turkey, and then a short boat ride over to mainland Greece. Now I was on the continent and my connections with OSS, the intelligence organization that predated MI6 and the CIA, my OSS operatives in Greece and Yugoslavia, told me that the people I was looking for were in a small camp called Takao, a concentration camp being formed in Germany. We had to take the road less traveled to get there. We couldn't take main roads. We had to take farmer carts, travel across properties, stay out of the day as much as we could, and travel by night. All of us were haunted by nightmares. All of us feared the worst, the growling, guttural sounds of the Vampire mummy, always in our thoughts, always in our minds. He claimed he didn't curse me, but I could feel him in my mind, constantly looking over my shoulder. It was like he was almost there. A powerful vampire, preserved as a mummy with all of the 
magical properties of that insane supernatural creature. I knew he was always watching, always listening. And the men that were with me were always in danger. There were times when we almost got discovered, almost got robbed. The scarabs, brightly gold in color, stood out. They were so odd. The men tried to cover them up, but they couldn't. Because he was always wanting to see and hear what was going on. A group of bandits tried to steal them from us. It was a horrible event. One of them, at gunpoint, reached up to pull the amulet off the neck of one of the men. The moment his hand touched the scarab's chain around his neck, a mist released from all four jeweled scarabs. The undead we were carrying with us in the scarabs formed ghost-like bodies around the bandits. They devoured them, sucked their blood, killed them on the spot. We were instructed to burn the bodies to prevent them from turning into undead themselves. We gathered their ammunition, their weapons, their supplies, and paperwork that we could forge into paperwork for ourselves. We dressed in what clothing we could to protect ourselves from the elements and the, to blend in better with the people of northern Yugoslavia. It was a grisly sight, and we burned the bodies as we left. We couldn't stay. It was horrible. But our overlord, the guardian of the undead temple, was true to his word. He both watched our movements, he heard our thoughts, he heard our voices, but he also protected us. We were on a journey for him, and him alone. Though he was a exacting taskmaster, he was a just protector as well. I just hope he would hold up his end of the bargain when the end came. It was time for us to regain our freedom. We reached the camp of Dachau. Three German operatives were waiting for us. Not all the Germans agreed with the Nazi Empire's rise to power. 
And we were fortunate enough to have three like-minded Germans willing to help us. One was a very staunch Nazi party member, but he saw the writing on the wall. He saw what they were trying to do with the undead in the warehouses off in the back of the camp. And he knew they must be stopped. They were using the brides nightly to transform four prisoners to an army of undead into soldiers they could control, drop like a pestilence on a city and overwhelm it. There was only four brides, so it doesn't sound like much, but after the first night you have eight vampires. The next night you have 16, then 32, then 64, then 128, I think. <laughs> and after that, the math escapes me. They had almost a thousand undead at this point. The master's voice was in the back of my throat. I could hear him his guttural sounds at the anger of the magics of both his mummy supernatural powers and the vampire curse being used for militant reasons for the purposes of dumping like paratroopers of the undead onto a city in the middle of the night, a thousand warriors, each one of them carrying a time-release explosive inside their bodies. They would be released onto a city like London and cause complete havoc, ravage, and wreck the town, destroying thousands of people's lives. And they could be decimated in a moment's notice by the time devices inside their bodies. But what they forgot or what they failed to recognize is the minute they bit or passed on the vampire curse, coupled with the magics of the mummy's powers, they would spread the vampiric curse like a rampant disease, like rats spreading bubonic plague, none would be safe from it. Soon the whole countryside would be ravaged by the undead, an army of uncontrollable evil loosed upon the population, millions of vampires spreading out in every direction. They didn't think their plan through. They weren't bulletproof soldiers that they could control, manipulate, destroy a city like shock troops, and then push a button 
and the next morning invade after they've overwhelmed all of the people's defenses. But what they didn't understand was they would be inheriting a city of the undead, dumping their soldiers into a pit of hell that they had unleashed on the world, worse than any zombie apocalypse you could imagine. Thousands and thousands of vampires descending on your soldiers at night. And every bite, every past on cursed man adding to the number a thousand, turning into two thousand, turning into four thousand, turning into eight thousand, turning into sixteen thousand, turning into thirty two thousand. Within weeks, Within weeks, everybody would be gone, hiding, waiting to be destroyed, and no food source left. They would spread out and keep spreading. Something had to be done. And quickly, by the time we got there, they had accomplished their goal. They had their thousand warriors laid out in a warehouse, all staked down, ready to be activated at a moment's notice. The surgeons of Dachau inserting the devices in them. While they're staked down, dry husks corpse waiting to be activated, and in a closed central tomb area, the four brides and their minions still producing the undead on a nightly basis. I was appalled by all this. I, I, I couldn't believe they would lower themselves to this, using the prisoners this way. But there was more. They told me that the horrors of the undead army are not even close to what they're doing to the living. And they showed me. They took me in the camps, dressed as we were in German guards' uniforms. We look like new recruits, new guards. Our collar designations allowed us passage and they took us around on a tour they handed me a camera and said pretend you are a military police attachment and you're filming this take back to Berlin. One of the men was dressed just like us. And we pretended to be shooting newsreels propaganda for Berlin. I couldn't believe what I was looking at through the camera, but the German leaned in close, the hardened, adamant Nazi party 
a true believer, he leaned in close and said, I especially wanted you to film this, Dr. Andrew Michaels. I wanted you to see it. I wanted to make sure your eyes saw what the Nazi party is doing here to the subhumans, the weak, to the people of Europe. I want it burned into your mind. And I want you to take it back to your leaders. What's being done here is a genocide. Being done on an industrial scale. I want you to own it as much as I do. I want you to live it as much as I have to live with it. I want you to be unable to forget. And I'm curious how your governments will react when they find out this news. He laughed at me. He knew what I already knew. This was too horrible just to put out in the public. He was giving me something I couldn't bear not to look at, but I couldn't look away. I couldn't look at it. I felt like my soul had left my body as I was looking through the camera lens at the bodies piling up, being loaded by starving inmates. The dead being loaded and pushed down to be buried in piles stretching on for a distance. Death being handed down on an industrial scale. I told him enough. And he grabbed me by my neck, leaned in closer, lifted the camera back up and said, Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. You get what you want, but I get what I want to And you haven't seen enough yet. And he made me pan the camera around to the in entrance, to the induction area, where they separated the men from the women, the able-bodied women going one way, the older women and the children going another way. Oh, you're almost there, he told me, so grisly. I thought, turning a whole army of soldiers into undead minions would be a blasphemy against all the his holy in the world and all of humanity. But this was worse. This was much worse. The crying 
kicking their suitcases, their possessions, their toys, herding them into buildings, herding them along, cutting their hair, stripping them of all their valuables, pulling their gold teeth, and then delousing them in the showers. All right, I told him I won't forget. Is that what you want to hear? Is that what you want to hear? Do mocks make hair? He grabbed me by under my bicep and said, Come, it's time to finish this. And we went to the back of the camp. <clears throat> You'll forgive me, it's hard to speak of this. But I must pass this on to you. I'll never forgive myself for not helping, not saying something, not screaming out loud. I'll never forgive myself. In these moments when our fellow humans devalue other humans, I know there's a time and a place to speak up, but There's also no excuse for staying silent, and I will always regret walking away in silence. We got to the back of the camp, to the special warehouses where the undead were stored. We needed a moment to drink a cup of coffee in the workers' security room. The warehouse looked like wood on the outside, but it was all sealed in steel cages. And it went underground for three levels. There were men being indoctrinated into this army that were still alive on the first level. I brought a suitcase with me. Not a small, not a large suitcase. A rather small one. In it, I possessed a bomb, a bomb like no other, a bomb that was designed by nuclear engineers in America for just this case, a small yield. 
bomb that would detonate underground and destroy all of this in a fireball. I know it's only 1942 and Trinity had not happened in the New Mexico desert just yet. The prototype I'm holding, though not a true atomic bomb, would be strong enough to do the trick and leave a scorch, scorched scar on the land. But I had to get it to the lowest levels possible. There was only one way to deal with this army of the undead, and that was to incinerate the whole complex. And the people helping me knew. We traveled down into the lower sections of the high security warehouses. They spoke in German and we agreed and nodded. They basically told the guards at the casket room that we were there to film, to take back images for the Fuhrer himself. They opened the door to the casket room, but they entered with us, four guards with guns. And my men and I walked in and started setting up lights and cameras to film the caskets. The men at first were doing their duty, setting up the lights, the tripods for the cameras. You remember back in those days, cameras used cans of film and the cameras themselves were very heavy. So five men or six men or seven men carrying film equipment into a dark subterranean room would not be unusual for lighting and purposes, battery packs, heavy cameras and film canisters. My briefcase did not stand out in this. One of the men turned to the caskets and said in German, um, here is, here it is. And the minute he did that, when he faced the casket, all four men spun and faced the caskets and froze. The mists, the undead inside them, inside the scarabs, pulled out and completely formed, wisping around the guards that were there, watching us, killing them, ripping them asunder. A most horrific sight. Rending their bodies and their heads. They would never turn into undead. They were murdered before our very eyes. And we were left standing with four undead soldiers, blood dripping from their hands, the claws that had formed at the end of their fingers, and the guards all dead. Then they went for the 
they went for the three agents that had helped us. I stopped them. I stood between them. The men, frozen and unmoving, suddenly started to cough, started to hack. I turned and saw the caskets. The caskets were entering, turning into mists, entering the scarabs. This was both a transportation device and a monitoring device. The caskets with the brides inside them were entering the scarabs. The men were coughing. The magics swirling around their bodies. It was almost more than they could bear physically. But then I knew what that meant. The four undead in front of me were released from their charge. And they were about to attack me. And they weren't listening. Right then, the process complete with the brides in tow, the men flipped all the way around to face us, just as the four undead sentries were about to attack. I pulled my handgun, hoping to at least slow them down, when suddenly black mist erupted from the scarabs. The queens, in a ghostly, ghastly, black, ghost-like form, shot from the scarabs, the men screaming in agony from the powers of the supernatural, wisping around their bodies. The queens erupted from the scarabs and smashed into the guards, shredding them, turning them to dust before our eyes. As their prime source of supernatural powers, they stripped them of it, pulled their powers back, turned them to dust, and then re-entered the scarabs. It was a most frightening sight to behold, and I was shocked. Four piles of dust lying at our feet. We stood up, the men now recovering from their arduous ordeal, the casket's gone, the queen's in tow. I said, I think it's time to set up the bomb. We all nodded in agreement, and our German spies that were with us ran to the door to make sure nobody was coming, and to guard the entrance while we set up the bomb. I opened the briefcase, and we attached several film canisters to it. They were part of the bomb, all disguised as film canisters. And we assembled the small atomic warhead. I set the timer, and I asked them if there was a way to lock it inside here. They said yes. I set the detonator, pushed the button to make it start, and the timer started going, counting down. We had a very little time to get out of the area. All four men helped me. We closed and locked and secured the tomb area. There would be no reason for anybody to enter. Two of the spies that were with me 
picked up the soldiers' weapons and stood at the door. I told them to come with me. They'll be killed. They said nobody can. Without guards here, they would know something was wrong. They would check. They were going to stay and sacrifice their lives and told us to go, run. The Nazi party member was the only man I could trust. He smiled and said, now you are in my charge. He laughed and started running down the passageway, telling me to follow. And the five of us did. We got out of the subterranean area, loaded up the camera we brought back with us and our tripods, and traveled to the gate. We remained calm. As a Nazi party leader, our spy easily got us past the gate, and we left. I was praying we could get far enough away before the bomb went off, and I was praying that we wouldn't get destroyed by the radiation that would follow. There was no other way. We had to incinerate all the vampires there. They must be turned to dust. We couldn't risk killing them one at a time or setting off their charges. They had to be killed all at once before anyone was aware. And the curse could be spread inadvertently. It was a doomsday device. And it would work. Just hope the yield wasn't too big. We traveled two hours away. We were roughly 40 to 60 miles away when we heard the bump. The ground vibrated. There was a bright flash. In the sky, the bomb had detonated. The curse was gone. The army of the undead destroyed. The ground around the explosion would upheave and then land back down on top of itself. The entire crater, a gaping hole, a radioactive mess. They would lead people to conspiracy theories for ages to come. We were far enough away to escape. We were taken to another group of soldiers who would take us out and back into Switzerland and then travel back down through Yugoslavia back to Crete where we came from or back to Greece where we came from the Nazi party leader said those four must return but you do not and he pulled a gun on me but for some reason I like you Dr. Andrew Michaels Though I may not be loyal to this idea, I am loyal to the rest of my party's ideals. We will build a Reich. They will talk about for a thousand years. And I know you'll never forget us and what you've seen here. He holstered his weapon and he ordered his men to take us away. And they did. They took us all the way to the border. Once we got to Switzerland, 
we were able to bypass the journey through Yugoslavia and Greece and then Turkey by getting a flight as diplomats back to Egypt. It wasn't easy, but thankfully the paperwork was waiting for us there. I was very grateful that we could make the journey back in such an expedient manner. It was an arduous journey through war-torn Greece and the Balkans. The Balkan states were just devastatingly awful. When we returned to Egypt, the British military was waiting for us and took us back to the lost city of the undead, where the workers' bodies were hidden. I stood back while the four men walked the night we got there, at night. I'm in a hurry to tell the story and really needs to be told properly. It was nighttime. It was a new moon. Our torchlights lit the area, and the four men with the scarabs walked forward to the tomb's entrance. The sentry, the vampire mummy, came out of the depths of the tomb, and he waved his hand across the men's faces and ordered them and myself to follow him. I came this far with these four men. I wasn't leaving them behind, no matter what. And after what I had seen in Dachau and what I had done, how many people had I killed with that bomb? I hadn't processed it all yet. I went down in that tomb and I didn't care if I lived or I died or if I was coming back out. I had seen too much. We got to the, the you know what it was? We got to his throne room. We got to his home. And in his home rested his coffin and the spaces for the other four. The coffins and the brides came out of the scarabs in the form of smoke and dust and it congealed and formed the caskets completely sealed. Once they sealed, the lids slid open and the queens all came out. The outstretched arms of the sentry above him, they curled up around his legs like cats, worshipping him, thanking him for returning them. It was a frightful sight of submission, but also love. 
I love them. These are, this is my whole world. Thank you. You've done your charge. The scarabs around the men's necks started to disintegrate. They fell completely off their necks and crashed to the ground and turned to dust. All that gold, all those jewels, back into the dust of the desert where they came from. The men took a step back towards me. You're free to go. Seal the entrance and never speak of this place again. And we did just that. We walked back out the passageway using the torchlight that I had with me. When we got outside, we set charges and detonated the entrance to the tomb. The five of us joined hands. And in the desert, we swore, no matter what, we would never speak of this again. But we would tell the tale, the story, the witness that we had seen in Dachau, and we would spread it to our governments. And with that, we parted ways. Brothers going in different directions in the middle of a worn, torn world. I thought we would leave it there, and that would be the end of it. I would never speak of the tomb in the middle of the desert again. But, sadly, I got a message from a very, very old friend. He couldn't believe I was still youthful, a middle-aged man while he was so ancient. He told me something had happened in New York City, and I must come at once. A small article in the paper that a tomb had been found, that a casket, a set of caskets, had been transported to New York City of all places. They had found the tomb. My friend in his late nineties, shaking his head, talking to me on FaceTime, saying, it's like Dick Tracy, isn't it? We're talking on Dick Tracy watches, isn't it like that? And he just looked right at me and said, how are you still so young? And I said, well, I might look young, but you're still sharper than me. You found them before I did. And he smiled compliment. You're still sharp, my friend. I hope you still know how to handle a gun. He raised his hand and picked up a Webley revolver and said, oh, my dear friend, you know that. You know that. <laughs> I told him I'd be on the first plane to New York. And I would be bringing my crew with me. And we were going to deal with this. And that, as we say, is the end of this chapter. Stay tuned for 
next week's adventure. Thank you. Until then, have a most blessed day. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for ASMR Tiralga Please take a moment to share this podcast with someone who might enjoy it and to rate or review it on your podcast player of choice. Those small things only take a few minutes and they really do help our podcast grow. If you are interested in additional ASMR content, you may view our library videos online at youtube.com slash Links to connect with us on social media and to take a look at our merchandise can be found in the show notes. The theme song Atlantis is by Jason Shaw of Audionautics.com and is used by permission. Correspondence, including questions or requests, may be sent to tiradohueo at gmail.com. On behalf of Dr. Andrew Michaels and his entire staff, thank you.